Hello, and welcome to what I call my podcast, Under the Skin, from Luminary. This week I spoke with Merlin Sheldrake. Merlin is a biologist, author of Entangled Life, and if you're listening, Merlin, hello, mate. How funky makes our world, changes our minds, shapes our futures. He's the son of renowned scientists. He won't want this. You don't tell people who people's dads are, do you? Yeah, but he loves his dad. Oh, he loves his dad. We talk about him in the podcast. He loves his dad. <laughs> well, I we talk about him in the podcast. <laughs> his name is Rupert Sheldrake. He's also been a guest. Yeah, see, it's relevant to the podcast. We could get every generation. We get his brother on. I never met a Sheldrake that I didn't like. Get them all on under the skin, have them on the mic. Well, that's just the beginning of my hip-hop career, but <laughs> I'm keen to explore new territory. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, I love him, and I love his book, Entangled Life, and I loved reading about him in Robert McFarlane's book, Underland, who devotes a chapter to his escapades with Merlin Sheldrake. I've got a lot of... What are them things that I'm supposed to be saying? I'm supposed to be saying something. Oh, yeah. Aren't we meant to read out... Charlie said we should read out comments. I've, I've included from, it. You thought I wouldn't include say it. that. You don't trust me. <laughs> I don't trust you, Jen, because of that time you put my email address I in know. a podcast, and I got... Emails. It was a terrible time of the year. A lot of changes happened. I got emails, very menacing emails all week long. It's terrible, terrible unprofessionalism from Jenny at. That is my email. You left your email in there. No? You just said my email. Is that your email? Of course. What? Did email? Yeah. But- you fool. Why? I'm not a famous person. I don't, I'm allowed to put my name. You're famous now. If any of you fancy Jenny May Finn, particularly those no. of you of chisely chins, oh. you can email her at... I'm going to beep it. Put in the subject... I'll put your email. Chisely chin. <laughs> don't you dare. I don't need no chisel chin, baby. I got my chisel chin, Steve, over Luminary. Oh, yeah. Chisel chin. Just put chisel chin in the title and Jenny May Finn may very well be coming your way. Jen well, makes... A lot of people think they have a chisel chin. But they don't. I know. You always say this, Jen. How dare you criticise me for my innovative and brilliant conversations around mushrooms when you are... A lot of people think they got a chisel chin but their bottom of their head's like a Malteser or like Bod's head. Bod from the TV cartoon is very small and round. I've got a chisel chin, Yeah, but you I? won't shave your beard. My daughter goes to me, Da, where your chin... Where exactly. your chin, she says. I go, here, it's here. No, you can't see it. Why does she even want to know where a chin is? It's obvious anatomically. I'll shave she it off, She doesn't know what you really look like. This is what I really no, look like. No, that's you when you're covered in hair on the face. Hold on a minute, Jen. <laughs> well, by that logic, you could say peel off the skin itself, shave the head, <laughs> shave off every hair off the body and be like Neo in that bit in the Matrix when he comes out of that gloopy battery. What, is that the real Neo? Is it, Jen? Well, well in a way, it is. Because the other one's a projection from inside the Matrix. So we're getting pretty close to the truth now. Oh, red pills. And by the way, when people see me doing a video about politics, they go, looks like Russell Brand's been red-pilled. What's I was it? reading about this stuff when I was a little girl growing up in Bolton. Wasn't I, Bear? Anyway, that's the side point. Look, <laughs> let's get into this. Rupert, not Rupert Sheldrake. That's, you've confused me by listing his family t- tree. Nice dad. Merlin Sheldrake. Go to merlinsheldrake.com. Get his book. It's absolutely lovely. Now, I've got some news for you. My Audible Original, Revelation, is released on 25th of March. It's available for pre-order now. Go to my website or any of my social media feeds and pre-order it. If I get a lot of pre-orders, it makes me look good. 
It makes me seem important and that in turn makes me feel important because as you know, I've based my happiness on external stimulants. Don't ever do that. But if you want the book, it's pretty good. In Revelation, I talk about how the pandemic sent us all into a kind of monastic hermitude and it revealed the truth about who we are and that we have to let go of our attachments to material things. Now, ironically, I recognize I'm trying to sell you a book on that basis or an audible original because it's not a book. Nonetheless, it's still, as the title suggests, full of deep revelation. Check it out. Here's some comments from the episode with David Kessler. Quite moving, wasn't it, Jane? Yes. But I didn't cry, though. No, almost. That's right, almost, but it's didn't. puffy eyes, but you don't really cry. You just get puffy eyes, don't you? Yeah, I don't really cry. <laughs> Do I just get puffy eyes? Yeah. Puffy eyes. Do you just keep eyes. them puffy because you don't want the tears to come out? So. They get what do I do? Puffed up with tears. <laughs> if you think that my eyes are like little puffers that soak up tears, Jen, <laughs> is that what you think they are? <laughs> Perhaps. They're all full of tears, but you're, you're all in a mix. You're a cold-hearted, hard-shelled <laughs> hermit crab. Leech, steal a shell. <laughs> Here are some uh, comments from Claire Louise Compton. Wow. Yeah. Powerful. Moving. Grief is definitely a very personal journey that waxes and wanes but never leaves. Oh, this is beautiful. And Mr. Kessler describes it beautifully here when he says that if you want to love, you need to know how grief comes at some point. Oh, no, I love so much. Oh, God, I can't take it. Um, it leads me into terrible pits of despair. This sort of discussion is essential, never more so than now. Thank you both. Prayer hands heart. Christinek.25. Grief is tough stuff. I pray for everyone who's grieving the loss of a loved one right now. Nice. Layers of healing. Yup. No one here. No one's getting out of here alive. Cool. Bit Jim Morrison. Cool. Rubs finds. This was such a beautiful episode because we want to give a shout out to you, our listeners. You are listening to us and we are listening to you. Yeah? Do you like that phrase? Could you see that on a, a, cup, on a cup? And we're listening to you. <laughs> You're listening to us, we're listening to you. What do you want to have in it? Puffy eyes, puffy eyes. And one of your phrases. You could have a nice cartoon of your eyes all puffed up. No, I don't want that. You say click instead of click. Yeah. That's not right. Rubs finds this is a beautiful episode, very genuine heart. If only we could acknowledge that we are connected through our suffering and ultimately death, maybe we could love more and appreciate every moment. God, that's so beautiful. Thanks you lot for writing these things. Shout outs to here's a shout out to you because this is the 1990s after all. <laughs> yeah, we're on the radio. <laughs> Big shout out. <laughs> like when you listen to pirate radio when you're a kid and you go, Big shout coming out. And then you sort of, it's like, I liked that sort of thing when I was little. I didn't ever really feel included, to be honest. I was a strange boy. But I enjoyed, you know, being on the periphery, looking in. There's a shout-out going out to Andrew Wright, who's listening on his drive to work. Concentrate, Andrew. Dan Monaghan, whose favourite bit is Russell and Jen's banter decanter. Let's call it the banter decanter. There could even be a sting. Banter decanter. Decanter, and it would echo. Banter when decanter. When does the sting come in? Just before. And what I hope is, is that Merlin Sheldrake's not patiently listening to this. Cause he seems like someone who wouldn't fast forward to his bits. Yeah, he's, he's probably much. listening. No, I'll fast forward to that. That's, that's inane. I'm not listening to that. That's asinine. I liked him. I don't know why, but I immediately thought of who I wanted to fix him up with. I assumed female, but I, don't, you know, I didn't inquire. I was thinking, you know, it's nice to have Merlin Sheldrake Wait, you around. just want one of us to go out with him so he can be around more. I don't know why it is deep, if you examine it more deeply, but it seems like it's a bit like that, yeah. No. Big discussion words, 
Yeah, Merlin wandering around, digging stuff up, planting mushrooms on things, playing his piano to a mushroom. He does weird stuff. Well, yeah, he's brilliant. All right, well, let's try it. Merlin, if you're listening. <laughs> we might not be because he listened to it because we sent him it as enough for his archives, didn't oh, we? Oh, yeah. I've listened to it. There's no need to listen to it now. Yeah. Ten minutes of absolute gack up the front of it. <laughs> the banter decanter. The banter I don't decanter. like the word banter, though. Why? Do you like the word decanter? Yeah. So what are we going to call it then? <laughs> the conversation decanter. Such a wasted decanter opportunity. Decanter reminds me of wine or something. Well, we, well, that's the main use of the <laughs> but word decanter. banter reminds me of late night. Well, right, like, yeah. like talk sport radio, but which I quite like. No, honest. like people drunk in a pub or something. Banter. Yeah. But we, it is banter, Jen. This is banter. <laughs> and it has been decanted. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Like, I'd like to use the word decant in different contexts. Like, if you might like to decant that, it might be a nice thing to say. Yeah, start saying it. I've decanted that. Does it work for everything or just... Well, like you could decant an idea, say. Could you? Why not? All right, come on, let's get on to Merlin Sheldrake. No one wants to listen to this. No one, no one in the world, except for the people that love the banter decanter. <laughs> Got anything you wanted to add? Isn't there something I'm supposed to be criticising you about? <clears throat> I don't think so. I like your boots. Yeah, the boots are good. I'm glad because I was nervous about them. When they were arriving or once you had when them When they on? arrived. You looked at them and you thought, uh-oh. Yeah, I thought, this is a statement. They're fantastic. The thing is, is the toe is a good shape. It's an the, interesting shape. Isn't it? The heel, whilst an aggressive heel, is... <laughs> Cuban, if anything, um, but it doesn't sort of stick out. It doesn't look like a platform. It's a piece of very good design, I'd say, that boot. I'm fully behind it. Thank you. Thank you, Jenny May. <laughs> Thank you, work colleague Jenny May. Okay, now listen, you should join up to my Elite Alliance Nexus cult, we're calling it, in some quarters, where I can send you direct emails. Go to russellbrand.com, stroke join or whatever, sign up for it. You'll get direct missives from me when I'll give you an like elite exclusive videos, live Zoom calls that you can come on. And if you can prove you've got 10 people to sign up to the mailing list, then I'll do a face-to-face -face Zoom call with you, in which you'll be a bit disappointed when it's revealed that it's with another 10 people or whatever. You've got to reveal that, haven't you? You can't lie to people. I know, why do I keep lying? Anyway, so... But still a good thing. You'll be on a call. Just 10 people will chat. And come to the live Zoom calls as well. I do meditations. I do all sorts of stuff. You'll be bang into it. You'll love it. So do it. And watch my YouTube channel. There's a new YouTube side channel coming called Awakening with Russell, in which we're going to be doing some pretty high-profile spiritual shit, I'd say. Excuse the language. You're right, Jen. You look stunned for a minute. Yeah, I don't know why I was stunned. You're easily stunned, aren't you, you poor thing? <laughs> Perhaps that's because you've started a relationship with a dog. I don't have a relationship with a dog. It touches you on the face. You said it touches you on the face. Yeah, but you and Bear have an interesting relationship. You know that man? I love that dog. You know that man <laughs> who touched my face? Which man? <laughs> face touch. Wait, and when? A year ago. Where were we? America. Was it in a photo shoot? No, no. It was at a, a gathering. It's a year ago, prior. Maybe it was two years ago. But anyway, he touched my face, and we did a video about it. Oh yeah. He's Jane Fonda's son. Oh. You know that you don't think that gives it an extra boost. But you were really annoyed. I don't like being touched on. Are the you face. more annoyed or less annoyed? Then? Both. Oh. I'm simultaneously more and less annoyed. <laughs> less because I saw him on this documentary, and he was absolutely lovely on that documentary, and I thought. He's been through a lot, this fella, and I really like him. But more because I 
just I thought about it again. Yeah, you don't like being touched. Don't like to be touched. Okay, well, there's some of my neuroses. <laughs> now this, <laughs> let's get on with the show. Poor Merlin. <laughs> if he's sitting there with his dad, why did you? You said brother, I'm going out with a dog. Well, Jen, something's going on with, to tell a creature you love it, and then yeah. to touch its face. Yeah, you do it all the time. Well, my boy, he's such a good yeah. boy, though. He's a good lad. <laughs> Anyway, look, follow the YouTube channel, follow the side channel, follow me all over the world if you like. But most importantly, that's now Merlin Sheldrake, a serious academic, a brilliant communicator, a vocabulary like I've not heard for a very long time. I was just sitting there trying to memorise words and sentences he was saying. It was so beautiful. I bet that dude speaks, or not speaks because I don't think he can speak, but knows Latin. Yeah, I bet he does. Because the way, oh man, it was beautiful stuff coming out of him. Anyway, have a listen, have a little learn. See you after. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Hello, Merlin. Hi, Russell. My podcast guests are getting younger. <laughs> and better qualified <laughs> and more Dionysian <laughs> you look very well here um, I've got a copy of your book The Entangled Life and I'm really grateful to you Merlin for coming on the podcast and uh, we had your book anyway by the way my wife bought it she's fascinated by the subject and by Paul Stamets and you know we've talked about your father's work a good deal um, I understand what this book is about, but can you tell me what is the uh, underlying and what a pertinent word that is, idea behind it? I suppose in some sense, um, on a basic level, it's an introduction to a kingdom of life, a little understood kingdom of life. And the kingdom of life is, is that of fungi. And um, fungi are, now there's many ways to be a fungus, and so there's no way that in one book I could talk about uh, the fullness of, of fungal life. But this was intended as an introduction, as a, as a way to perhaps to alleviate our fungus blindness um, and to um, serve as a reminder maybe or invite people into a, an understanding of life as uh, bound up in, uh, inextricably in networks of relation and interdependence. Um, and also part of the book is to, um, to suggest that fungi can help us think in new ways. They're such unusual organisms. They behave so strangely that um, I think they can help to soften some of our calcified categories and lead us into new ways of thinking. Do you think that many of the problems we face now are based on motifs and ideals around individualism and separateness and even perhaps utility and how do these if the, how do these ideas represented in this biology challenge that and is there anything around sentience like i think it's even for me you know i feel like i have very particular ideas about what sentient life is and what sentient life looks like and behaves like i'm a fan of terence mckenna and you know, obviously, one of his most famous ideas is that 
we evolved in symbiosis with fungi and that our intelligence and perhaps even our DNA is sort of integrated with a mushroom. And I wonder, do you, do you, I know that you have sort of similar interests and sort of familial connections to Terence McKenna. Do you share any of those ideas and is any of that stuff relevant to you? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, without a good answer, but we can speculate, which is fun. Um, but Terence, so, so the, the Terence's stone date hypothesis being that um, the ingestion of psychedelic mushrooms deep in prehistory um, catalyzed the expansion of the hominin brain and the acquisition of new faculties and levels of awareness that weren't present before. So they were somehow a, uh, a, a trigger for us to become uh, humans. And, and there's certainly something to be explained. Uh, there was a, a huge boom in our brain size from about 3 million years ago to about 200,000 years ago when recognisable uh, humans um, arose. And in that 3 million year sprint, our brains grew to four times the size that they'd grown in the previous 60 million years of, of primate evolution. So there's a rapid expansion of brain size. Um, and why, why did this happen? Terence suggested that, um, that it was psychedelics and particularly psychedelic mushrooms that caused this. Uh, I don't know if that's... Um, I don't think that could be just the only reason. There's a very plausible case made that it's partly because of our discovery of fire and how to cook food. And so we, you know, the, the amount of energy we need to divert to our guts was reduced because cooking food uh, made this all so much efficient. And we had much more energy that we could put towards our brains. Our brains are such hungry organs. They make up 2% of our body weight, but take 20% of our energy at rest. So that energy's got to come from somewhere. So, um, of course, there's no... Um, no, the cultural um, influence of psychedelics is uh, is profound, as we know, in modern history, um, as we're pretty sure in antiquity, and this seems very likely in prehistory. So uh, there's no unbreachable limit between, um, in, unbreachable divide between uh, cultural effects of psychedelics and biological effects. You can imagine, for example, someone uh, having a mushroom trip deep in prehistory and had the idea to domesticate fire to start cooking food. And then that domestication of fire uh, went on to cause a, a huge transformation in, in our physical biology over generations. So there's, there's potential there for, uh, for interplay. Um, yeah. Well, I know we're sort of somewhat out of your field of expertise, although you wouldn't know it from how lucidly you uh, explain it. But the, uh, uh, is there anything comparable to that kind of jump elsewhere in evolution, like not necessarily even in the brain, but like a sort of a significant evolution that's sort of comparable to a brain increasing four times in size? And is there sort of plausible, testable data around the idea of, you know, like cooking food and the release, reducing the burden on the gut and... Is that something that can, is that just as hypothetical as the stoned ape theory and just slightly less magic? So it's very unlikely that we're going to find evidence uh, in fossil form that will give us a definitive answer to this question. Um, there have been developments in um, studying of our genome and the, the kinds of mutation that have been required to uh, allow um, glucose uptake to be more efficient and be diverted to our brain rather than our gut. Um, but those don't. Those just suggest you know, what's needed to happen in our body to make these changes happen. They don't say um, why those mutations occurred or, or what created the conditions for them to occur. Um, so I think we're always going to be left speculating about this, uh, which which is fine. You know, it's it's um, it's a fun uh, and exciting 
subject for us to uh, for, for us to delve into. Did your fascination with fungi or fungi come from psychedelic experience and how 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 has it become so broad and what is it that's fascinating about fungi beyond the rather vivid and transformative ideas around uh, hallucinogens? Well, that was one thing that that interested me when I was 15 or 16. It was that period, I don't know if you remember, Russell, when that magic, fresh magic mushrooms were legal and you could buy and sell them on the high streets. Um, and so in 2004, 2005, and so around that time, like, like many others, um, I, I ate magic mushrooms and I had very interesting times uh, exploring these states of consciousness. Um, it was amazing, actually, how much was taken at that time. Just the, the Camden Mushroom Company, just one of the companies selling mushrooms on Camden High Street, they were shifting about 25,000 trips a week during that period. Uh, and I'm not sure. <laughs> and then there's like all the other companies on Camden High Street. And then there's all the other companies on Portobello Road. So I, I think there's a lot of chipping going on there, um, which, is, which is an interesting thing that perhaps we don't talk about as much as we... Um, much as we could but um so psychedelics was one way in but i was already interested in fungi before that because when i was young then i was interested in how things change you know how does a bucket of compost you tip it into the garden the compost heap how does that become soil um how the leaves decompose these seem like really big dramatic uh, happenings in the living world and when i asked about this how did these things take place and, and, I, and the microbes and fungi were explained to me i, I was amazed that there could be such uh, such powerful organisms, organisms capable of such powerful transformations that were invisible to me, that were not perceivable to my unaided senses. Uh, and this raised in me a great curiosity about, about, this, uh, about this microbial world, you know, and that's persisted. There's a lot of um, ideas, it seems, about how the, um, this invisible world that you describe could be mobilised to address some of the sort of severe global problems that we're encountering, ecological issues. We talk to us about some of those, Merlin. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of ways that we can partner with fungi to help us adapt to life on a damaged planet. Of course, fungi underpins the whole biosphere and have done for over a billion years. So um, it's more a question of it's not like fungi will be necessarily doing hugely new things. It's more that we'll be coming more mycologically literate um, and using our mycological literacy to, um, to create new technologies that can uh, lead us out of some of our ecocidal tendencies, perhaps. So there are, there are a few ways to think about it. There's uh, fungal foods. Um, people have eaten mushrooms for a nobly long time. But um, besides mushrooms, there are lots of exciting uh, possibilities for developing like protein-rich meat substitutes from mycelium, which can be grown very fast, uh, don't need to cut down the Amazon to grow cattle, etc. Um, there are fungal building materials that can replace plastics in many applications. And so not only can you harness to waste agricultural waste, uh, which you use to grow the, the fungi, um, but you can help to disrupt these polluting industries. Then there's uh, fungal medicines, and this has obviously been a thing for a while, penicillin, is a very famous example of a fungal medicine that's, that's had a big impact. Um, psilocybin, as you say, is another. Um, but there are uh, many other possibilities here. And, um, and Paul Stamets, for example, has had a, a lot of success in treating colony collapse disorder in honeybees with fungal antiviral compounds. And that would obviously be a huge, uh, huge boon if we could harness that. Um, 
And then there are the possibilities in agriculture and forestry. The, the industrial agriculture is enormously damaging um, and has developed without taking account of the life of the soil. And same with a lot of forestry. Forget that like, for the, most of the forest is underground. Um, and that if we don't think about these subvisible hidden uh, realms, then um, we're going to get into even more trouble than, than we've got ourselves into. So um, the role for including fungi in, in agriculture and forestry, uh, more sustainable techniques, is, is huge. Uh, there are many others, but, but perhaps I'll stop there. What does it indicate, do you think, uh, about our world view that um, such utility remains unaddressed? Do you think that's just to, you know, like a, to do with, I don't know, progress, the sort of slow progress of science and our ability to understand and translate potential use of a, a life form such as this? Or is it an indication of a kind of ignorance, particularly when coupled with the kind of, I don't know, historical and almost mythic significance of mushrooms and the way that that motif uh, recurs sort of through folklore? Do you, does it suggest to you that there is some sort of deeper relationship between our species and the many species of fungus that you're talking about? Yeah, well, there's a very deep relationship um, between any living organism and, and fungi because, you know, fungi have played key roles in the evolution of plants. For example, plants are, are fungi that have evolved to farm algae and algae that have evolved to farm fungi. So anything that we think of as life on land, uh, there's a fungal backstory there. Um, so we are inseparable from a history of fungi. And... Um, but there, I think there are reasons for that, this neglect. You know, some people describe mycology as a neglected mega science. Uh, and um, fungi have received a fraction of the attention that animals and plants have over the years. And part of that was because they were seen to be a sort of plant until the 60s when they won their independence, taxonomically speaking, along with bacteria. And, um, and so that meant that you couldn't have departments of fungal sciences. You know, there was departments of animal sciences, departments of plant sciences, but there was no special place to study fungi. So they weren't the same professors, the same number of students, the same amount of funding, a kind of institutional neglect. Um, and, and thankfully, they're starting to change. Um, but then there are other reasons that go back beyond that. You know, fungi live most of their lives as mycelial networks, um, branching, fusing networks of tubes. And out of sight. And the mushrooms are just the fruiting bodies of fungi. So for much of fungal life is not readily available to us. Um, and and the mushroom, imagine how little you'd know of, of an apple tree if all you saw of it were the apples that it pushed up through the ground for two weeks every year. And there'd be a lot that we just simply didn't know. Um, so I think part of it is to do with to their hidden um, lifestyles and how much they uh, are enmeshed with their surroundings. Um, and so, in general, though, I think there's, there's a big change that happened in 20th century biology to do with uh, our understanding of symbiosis and the importance that symbiosis has played in the evolution of life, rather than thinking about evolution as a story of unmitigated conflict and competition, that actually uh, there's a huge role for cooperation and that the... Um, the intricate and intimate interplay between different organisms has shaped much of what we see around us today. And, and so I think perhaps um, 
the fungal, the turn to, towards fungi and the, the rising interest in fungi is something to do with uh, the times we find ourselves in and this more ecological turn uh, as people start to realise that we're bound up within a shimmering networks of interrelation. And, and fungi are kind of poster organisms for that. You know, they, they embody their basic principle of ecology, their, their actual connections between organisms, you know, they, they, their actual living um, ecological connective tissue. Can you give us some, that's really beautiful, can you give me some examples of that uh, intricate, intimate interplay between mushrooms? I can see your love of music in the way that you communicate. Um, can you give us some examples of the, of that, please? Yeah, so... Um, so all plants, for example, depend on fungi that live in their leaves and in their stems um, and, and in the trunks of trees uh, and in their roots. And, and the root fungi have, have got perhaps more attention than the leaf fungi. They're, they're known as mycorrhizal fungi. And it was only with the help of these fungi that plants' ancestors could move out of the water and onto the land about 500 million years ago. Uh, and t- until plants could evolve their own roots, which took tens of millions of years after they'd started moving onto the land, these fungi behaved as the root systems of plants. And so there's this uh, trading relationship between plants and their root fungi. And the root fungi are, are, are nimble uh, and able to explore the soil and scavenge uh, ingeniously for um, nutrients. And the plant is able, the foundational superpower of plants is is, is their ability to photosynthesize, to eat uh, light and carbon dioxide and, and create energy-containing compounds like sugars. Um, and they can trade those sugars with the nutrients that the fungi have acquired from the soil. And there's, these, these relationships are, are very dynamic and intricately managed. You know, there's the a fungal network can be connected to multiple plants and a plant can be connected to multiple fungi. Uh, and the amount of trade that takes place between these organisms changes depending on what's going on around them, depending on uh, who else is involved, what season it is, how available nutrients are. Uh, and so this is a really... Um, it's very busy. It's very busy. <laughs> <laughs> when I listen to you, I get the sense that the way that we see reality is determined I suppose, obviously, by the limitations of our sensory instruments and were we afforded a different bandwidth, we would see less separateness and more harmony and symbiosis and interconnectivity. And that might have sort of profound philosophical implications. Like when you said, like, you know, there's these sort of submerged and uh, sub-visible realms, that I felt that that had... a a correlative in the sort of way that we regard reality whether it's our own unconscious and and also stuff you've said about our attitude towards waste being one of concealment rather than i don't know of process and also our ideas around separateness and interconnectivity it's like our models of reality are suffering because of our ignorance in this area so as well as the sort of practical application that you've sort of discussed and, that, you know, that while it sounds very complex, I'm beginning to understand the sort of how these um, systems might be utilised for the, the benefit of the planet. Do you think there's some sort of uh, analogous reality that's sort of being alluded to almost by this um, behaviour and uh, sort of being of these of these organisms you mean analogous to the ways that we are 
developing as humans in our own minds and, and psyche. Yes, and like I can't, yes, I do sort of mean that, um, Merlin. But also, what I reckon, what I mean is that we um, have models of reality that are based on separateness and individualism, and these models are somewhat founded upon our inability to acknowledge sort of a various strata of, you know, um, demonstrable reality that you're sort of describing to us. And perhaps our models might alter if we had more vivid access to these realities. I think that's right. And, and it's also important to point out that many of these uh, ecological realisations that are coming out of the modern sciences have rather a lot in common with uh, many traditional worldviews that have seen the living world as um, made up of intimate reciprocal uh, relationships and um, from which humans are uh, inextricable and in which we belong. And so there's actually um, rather a lot of, it feels, remembering going on um, rather than discovery. And I think this is quite an important piece because many of these traditional knowledge systems um, arose, I mean, most of them arose before these technological innovations that have allowed us to um, enter these fungal worlds uh, in a modern in a modern way, and nonetheless came to uh, rather similar conclusions uh, about uh, about how about how nature worked. Tell us about this waste thing that you write about, Merlin. You know, like our attitudes to waste and stuff. Yeah, well, we got kind of a dis- well, it's pretty seriously dysfunctional uh, philosophy of waste, and it'd be great if we had um, if we could revise this, perhaps taking inspiration from organisms who have been handling um, waste in a world-changing way for a very long time. Fungi, one of the things that fungi do, they're great decomposers. And so um, we walk around in the space that fungi leave behind. And if fungal uh, decomposition didn't happen, then we'd be buried kilometers deep in the bodies of animals and plants. Um, Not that those plants would have ever existed without the fungi that held them to grow. You can uh, forgive that oversight in, in, in... um, so I think this is really a powerful thought, you know, that, that the space that we exist in uh, is left over from the activity uh, of, of decomposing microbes and, and fungi. And so uh, given that this has been going on for a very long time, given that fungi are um, masterful decomposers, are there ways that we can harness the power to decompose to, um, to re-examine our to re-examine our systems of waste, which are consuming, which are normally based on rather a straight line where something is made, um, it is transported to a consumer, it is used and it is disposed of as if that is the end of its mm. life. But if we could think of this more of a circle, um, which is how nutrients cycle in um, in the world around us, then we could perhaps um, get rid of... The, I mean, if you think landfills are kind of the terminus you know, you can think it's just like this dead end where everything just accumulates, piles up in a filthy, poisonous pile. Um, a, a massive uh, heap of, of waste, which speaks to our inability to think in terms of cycles. And so I think fungi can uh, help us to think in terms of, um, of you know, where, where do these waste streams flow to? You know, can, can we help these waste streams to flow rather than to pool in these, uh, into these horrible... Um, stagnant masses separateness feels linear and uh interconnectivity it could be circuitous or circular um it occurred to me hey do you believe in god then 
um, it depends. Yes or no, Merlin. <laughs> yes or no. I tell you, I tell you, the god, a god that I don't believe in is the god that is commonly discussed by um, by a number of celebrity atheists, which is a, a sort of craftsman god um, that created all things and then, uh, like a giant machine, a kind of clockmaker, and then stood back and then. Um, and then kind of retired. And this is not a kind of God that, that I believe in. Um, so that's why it matters to me what kind of God we're talking about. But if we're talking about uh, the fundamental mystery that lies uh, at the base of uh, the universe, the, the ground of being from which everything springs, you know, why is there something rather than nothing? This feels like the reality is uh, suspended on a ground of being. Um, Physicists often talk about the initial conditions before the Big Bang. My friend Teddy St. Aubin always jokes that God would be a more straightforward way of saying initial conditions, at least he doesn't ramble on for six syllables, um, <laughs> as the advantage of brevity. Um, so I think there's a profound mystery. There's a kind of wellspring of being. Uh, and this is, I'm happy to call this God and happy to think about this as a, as a, as a divine um, from which uh, life and, and, and all creation can proceed. How beautiful. And do you think that those uh, models, those, you know, the craftsman metaphor and the kind of mechanical, uh, that sort of the inventor model is a sort of a cultural one and a, and a straw man at the same time, or clockwork man, I don't know, like, like a, that sort of prevents us from accessing the possibility that nature is continually providing us with kind of uh, living poetry that sort of leads back to the idea of mystery, interconnectivity, oneness, perennial notions that recur throughout, you know, folklore. Do you, do you think that this kind of state of um, cynicism, scepticism, individualism and materialism, like this post-rational uh, bewilderment, as it were, is something that uh, facilitates the kind of uh, nihilism and uh, that you said something like ecocide? Like, do, do you think that it's, uh, um, that it somehow uh, engenders this, these conditions? Yeah, I think so. If we think about ourselves as neatly bounded individuals separate from all other humans and also separate from the living world that, that we're embedded within, um, then we can justify uh, ecological devastation. We can justify exploitation of other humans because it's separate from us. Um, there's some sense in which um, I'm not saying that uh, those justifications are valid. I'm just saying that that's a way that um, justification can be mobilized. Um, but if you think about yourself as having rather soft edges, expanded edges, and you think about the air that you breathe, which forms part of your, um, which forms a crucial part of your bodily systems, um, think about yourself as a um, as all living organisms, as a process rather than a thing. You know, as a system through which matter is passing. The stuff that made up Russell three years ago is different stuff from the stuff that makes up the Russell of today. You know, um, if you think about ourselves as these flowing um, systems um, rather than neatly identifiable things and then we end up in rather a different place because it becomes harder to um, harder to make excuses about ecologically destructive behavior or or um, otherwise um, exploit exploiting humans um, because 
Um, these are not separate from us. We can't think of our lives as separate from these other lives, these many different sorts of, of other lives. So I think there's a, a individualism and neat separatism does have a lot to answer for. Um, and I think a worldview that shifts more towards uh, interrelationship, um, inextricable interrelationship, it's not just you know, interrelationship also simplifies it, it makes it seem like there are two neat individuals that need to be related. Um, whereas really it's, I think of it more like, you know that drawing Escher's drawing hands where one's drawing the other one and the other one's drawing that one at the same time? Yes. Um, you can't have one without the other. And it's, it's rather like that when you have these, um, these nested symbiotic relationships. You know, we contain you know, bacteria, quotidian bacteria uh, and fungi and viruses without which we couldn't grow and behave as we do. And big bacteria contain small bacteria and bacteria contain viruses and large viruses can contain smaller viruses. And it is just how life works. It's, um, it's impossible to think of neatly divisible individuals. At least when you look at the story of life in this way, it becomes clear that the individual is not a natural fact, but a category that depends on one's point of view. And I think that's quite helpful. Although empirically, it feels like we're individuals. Which aspects of uh, consciousness, which appetites and drives do you think we're unduly promoting in order to foster this perspective? And do you think even in the fields in which you are plainly an expert, there is information that could alter our perception and I don't mean sort of theoretically because you've sort of already done that. I mean, do you think there's a way of changing the experience of being an individual? Yeah, well, I find I find thinking about fungi and microbes and these relationships, I find that changes my experience of, of, of moving through the world. Um, if I think about the plants that I eat, not as you know, Sam holding a, a, a tomato or an apple or whatever, um, if I think about this as a rising, as a visible outgrowth of, of a network of relationships, um, then that rather changes my experience of the apple um, and the eating of that apple. So I think these ideas themselves have power to change our experience, especially when told uh, compellingly in the form of stories. And, um, and I think would have a lot of power to, um, if young people were brought up with these stories, with the story of the living world or the various different stories of the living world that we tell um, incorporated these themes perhaps a little more than they currently do. Um, and there are other ways that this can happen more literally. You know, psychedelics is a good, a good, good example. People have take magic mushrooms or, or the psilocybin, the chemical you know, from magic mushrooms. And many people report uh, in this new wave of research that's happily taking place. Um, they report a, a kind of Ego dissolution is sometimes caught, or um, the self dwindles off into otherness gradually. You know, they lose track of where they end and their surroundings begin. And I think this is a very, um, like with many mystical experiences, uh, there's, um, there are these ways for us to have uh, compelling uh, and vivid um, embodied realizations uh, that can really change the way that we live our lives. What about, did you know Terence McKenna then? Yeah, um, I didn't get to spend much time with him as an adult because he tragically died when I was 13, but I spent a lot of time with him as a child. He seemed like he might be kind of like a magic gnome to have around your house. <laughs> yeah, he definitely was. Um, well, his voice, obviously, his sing-song voice, and he's very good at telling stories. You know, this was something that I was um, captivated by. Did he interact with you? Was he interested in you when you was a kid? Yeah, I mean, he was, 
him, my father, and and Ralph, their friend, they 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 were always getting together to do trilogues, their trilogue conversations, and so um, there were quite a lot of chances to to spend time with Terence because whether in England or in Hawaii or in in, in America or Canada, um, and. Yeah, he had a very, very powerful imagination and, and also this amazing ability to leap across the different disciplines. What I now recognise as dis- different disciplines because I've been educated into different disciplines, whereas as a child it just seemed like a normal thing to do, uh, with little regard for, for boundary uh, and division between these, these disciplines. A kind of irreverence, a playful irreverence, which I, which I find inspiring and very much respect. Yeah, he had a lot of sort of powerful trickster energy going on. And sometimes the depth of knowledge, like even in just in terms of vocabulary that he has across, as you say, a multitude of disciplines is beautiful, but not baffling, kind of just overwhelming to, to experience. It was incredible. Like your father, what was your relationship, if you don't mind me asking? Do you, you get on well with your father? Very well, yeah. Oh, how beautiful. Um, and what about the Anglicanism, which I spoke to your dad about, and I thought it was very sort of beautiful and simple when he spoke to, about, spoke to me about Evensong and Eucharist and uh, principles of Anglicanism, pilgrimage. I remember a lot of the things he spoke about. What kind of impact did that have on you, and how, do you, um, how, do you, how does it sit with your, not conventional, but like an academic understanding of, sort of you know, ethno botany and like you know you know so much stuff from an academic perspective how does that sit with like that kind of conventional religious stuff well he's very good at uh, animating and mystifying anglicanism and so um you know if he explains for example that this might be a church that was built in the 18th century but before it was built there was a much older church that was built on top of an existing sacred site which had been a sacred site for an unknowably long time where people came long before uh, this person called jesus arose um, and they came here to practice and to connect with what it means to be a human uh, what it means to be a living organism as part of this living planet uh, as part of this uh, this universe in a state of continual becoming um, and that these processes that take place here are bare echoes of that past uh, and through coming to these places we can connect with something very deep about what it means to be alive and when i when and, and singing for example you know the, the power of singing and, and, and astonishing music that takes place in in anglican churches um, that also then becomes another way of connecting uh, to the mystery and um and all these various pilgrimage, for example, another way. And so um, it all sounds rather exciting, you know, from this point of view, rather more exciting than when one just goes to, at least when I just went to Sunday school uh, and felt like I was just being told um, rather dry stories uh, about people that seemed rather remote um, to me and, and to my life. Um, and so this sense of uh, remystifying um, re- reanimating, bringing in um, the powerful excitement, the wild ride that it really is to to connect uh, through these practices. You know, I don't think you even need to believe uh, in God, or you think you could be a, a, a you know, whatever your belief system. And these these spiritual practices can still um, connect you. They can still offer you that exciting uh, ride into into ever deepening mystery. There's a lot of um... Uh, it's a multivalent world it seems in which you have grown like with when I think of 
you know, and I'm not, perhaps I'm overstating the impact of your father's influence and the influence of being around uh, Terence McKenna at such a formative time. But I suppose I wouldn't be doing that if you'd, you know, written a book about cars or samurai swords or something. You know, like. But it feels like there's there's the the mutual love of the divine and your appreciation of divinity through sort of symbiosis and interconnectivity. But I, I wonder where you fall on uh, with the kind of the implicit. Uh, hedonism and mischief that was in, in sort of Terence McKenna's outlook. It, and I'm, I'm not suggesting in his behaviour, but certainly it, it seems as, just as a like you know when I, I listen to a lot of his stuff, you know. And I, I wonder where you sit with that. And also the I know that your father, as well, it seems to me at least, is interested in the political implications of many of these. Uh, would would have to say radical in a contemporary context, if not in a broader context. Uh, the the sort of radical the application of these somewhat radical ideas. Well, where how do these uh, attitudes sit within your worldview, Merlin? And don't think I didn't notice you just drank from a jam jar. And no matter what you think of waste, it's an Elvis Presley lyric that you should never do it, except as an alternative to damaging someone's blue suede shoes. <laughs> Thanks for that, Russell. Um, I like uh, I like your hedonistic bottle swigging. Um, <laughs> something. It was an olive oil bowl. Both of us are uh, <laughs> both of us are recycling in our own way. Mine r- rather more pa- piratically. <laughs> um, so the head. So the hedonism. Um, I mean, I don't. I don't have a. Um, I don't have a problem with hedonism in itself. Um, there are many ways in which hedonism can lead us towards um, ecstasy, towards mystery, towards um, powerful uh, experiencing of, of of life. And so, um, no, I wouldn't want to uh, say a bad word about it, unless, of course, it gets too far to balance and becomes destructive to um, to to the hedonist or or to the hedonist's associates. <laughs> And what about the political application of some of these ideas that run directly at odds with the kind of individualism and materialism that, is, in a sense, defines the most powerful systems, be they political or economic, of our time? Yeah, I think there are quite a lot of, of implications. I mean, if you think about if you think about our philosophies, our worldviews, economic systems, political systems, uh, and the way that they depend on certain concepts like individuality. Uh, if you pull the rug from under the concept of the vid- individual, then what happens to those uh, philosophies, uh, econ- economies, um, systems? Um, I'm interested in this question. I think there's a lot that maybe start, will start to happen um, in this kind of regard in the coming years as the the real profound implications of these biological discoveries really sinks in and becomes part of a popular imagination. Uh, it's not just something that happens in biology departments and is talked about by you know, um, ecologists. But um, I think there are big questions to be asked. Like, if you have um, a biological individual, if we're calling it, you know, you've got to have individuals to, on some level, like you've got to pay uh, your parking fines and get passports and... Um, so, so there's obviously a great use for these concepts, but um, but I think if these concepts become questions rather than answers known in advance, if they become subjects of ongoing inquiry um, rather than just left and taken for granted, then I think you start to make decisions in different kind of ways. Uh, I think there's a different kind of humility that might creep in. Um, 
based on uh, principles of respect and gratitude. Um, and um, I think there are some good things that can happen. And not necessarily going to happen, of course, just knowing that just thinking about these things doesn't bring about um, positive change. But I think this, these findings can be mobilised um, in certain uh, perhaps constructive ways uh, to effect very necessary change today and moving forwards. Yeah, because I want to think about the impact. I mean, like the impact of individualism on my own life, my own individualism, my own certainty in myself. I have to like, you know, meditate myself into a near stupor to to experience for a moment the idea that what I want, what I prefer, what I need, what I'm afraid of aren't the most important things in the world and are in fact kind of constructed it's very difficult to find a route through that and when you were talking just now about some of these complex ideas somewhat complex ideas about symbiosis and how they challenge these uh, foundational notions of individualism and separateness I thought bloody hell like these ideas have got to emerge into a space where even I'm thinking about my own household where I have access to men like you and your dad and all sorts of other people who are talking about this beautiful, esoteric, groundbreaking, radical ideas. I still like watch TV. I still eat dumb food. I'm still deadening my sentience through you know 21st century or is it 20, I can't remember which one we're in anymore lifestyle choices that are not in harmony with the kind of understanding that you're conveying so I wonder what sort of challenges may be faced in popularizing these ideas and obviously you've written a book about it so we can hardly point the finger of blame at you you're trying your artist Merlin but I, I wonder if you feel uh, optimistic about the possibility of such um, uh, unusual ideas to enter the mainstream when the mainstream sort of is determined by the rejection of these kind of ideas in a sense. Yeah, I mean, it's all very well to talk about stuff uh, as as we know. And, um, and people might entertain these ideas at a dinner party and then they'll go home and uh, revert straight back um, to to their behavior and things won't change um, necessarily. So there's nothing to say that the ideas and the stories about these ideas will bring about this change. I think experience is really important. I think experiencing um, connection with the living world is very important. And I think that's important as um, in, um, in our growing up process in the development of, of all of us as, as humans. I think so some way that this could be perhaps um, put into practice in a more effective way than just chatting about it would be to um, expand, say, forest schools or, or forest school, have forest school modules uh, in educational programs so that children had some way of um, experiencing time outside, experiencing play outside, curiosity outside, have a chance to actually form relationships with organisms that weren't other humans uh, or perhaps or that aren't machines. You know? um, and I think there are ways that we could start to open up educational curricula um, and you know, make them more, more fun and, and, and prioritise um, curiosity and, and, and passion and, and connection uh, and that that would be rather an effective way to put these ideas into into practice yes 
Do you have any uh, ambitions to bring your work to young people or even children? Yeah, it's something I'm thinking about now um, and how that might how, might how that might work. I live in the countryside, you know, I'm not poor. My kids get to be outside and go to schools where or like at least educational, you know, sort of preschool stuff like where they can be outdoors and we have time and you know i suppose i suppose they at least have they at least have access to those kind of ideas and i, I imagine that in your childhood with a, a father father like yours i, I don't um, forgive me no much about your mum but like that you obviously had access to these ideas pretty early and that the that you probably were taught to think critically when you're pretty young and to question things and and you know and I still feel concerned about the pervasiveness of the dominant cultural ideas, you know? I, do you think ever about starting little communes? <laughs> um, I think you're completely right. You can, you can educate children in whatever way you like, but if, if they pop out from their, their official educational um, time and enter into a, a fiercely individualistic society, then what are they going to do but conform in some way to that individualistic template that governs all the decisions that they have to make in their, in their life. So obviously, larger systemic change is required. Um, communes. Um, I never thought about starting a commune. I have a few friends who live in communal uh, situations. Um, I spend time uh, in groups um, in, you know, I have done since I was a child and I enjoyed those times. But um, no, I have, I have no particular ambition to start uh, a commune. I bet you like your own space, don't you? you? You're probably a little bit shy and a bit strange when it comes to the crunch. You don't want someone hustling past, grabbing your crunchy nut cornflakes at 5pm <laughs> on a Wednesday. What's your experience then with um, communes and stuff, Merlin? What, what, where are they? And tell us a bit about it. Well, I don't think I think the actual communes. I mean, I just spent my parents t both teach workshops. They both spent time um, leading groups, um, and so I spent time traveling around as a child to various different places where there were group processes in play, and um, and so um, that's something which is not uh, foreign to me. But I haven't um, I haven't tried to spend my adult life living in this kind of way, um, and. Um, but I think there's a lot of lessons that we can um, we can play around. You know, I think there's play that can happen in groups where some of these ideas can be put into practice. I think, you know, generally thinking about play as a kind of a lab for ideas and enacting ideas is 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 a really really promising and, and has been done, of course, for uh, forever. Um, Alfred North Whitehead, the philosopher, he has a he thinks of human religions as arising from play. Uh, being kind of ritualized play the religion is not so much about what you believe it's more about what you do um, and that these actions are, are sort of emerge out of uh, playful uh, embodied curiosity um, and so I quite like this idea and so <clears throat> yeah so so in, in some in communal situations I think we can you can play you can enact some of these perhaps more scientific ideas in in kind of group um, processes and see what happens what happens if you change this what happens if you change that because there's a lot of solemnity around uh, religion. That spirit of play is often absent. I'm wondering about how different ideologies could be nurtured uh, in you know when the overall conditions are so adverse to that kind of 
evolution adverse to that kind adverse to that kind of change it's something that i think about a lot creating i don't know enclaves for growth and for play and for new ways of being but i'm aware myself of how um tainted contaminated and embedded in our culture i am i've been a celebrity i have vanity you know i was like i suppose i've lived in a lot of environments been drawn to a lot of environments and stayed in environments that uh, really uh, amplify those traits and tendencies i feel like without a, some kind of conversion without what amounts to a spiritual uh, awakening which if it's if you take that to mean an altering of one's perception i've been fortunate enough to have although i would scarcely claim to be the finished article i feel like i want to ex exist in communities where that is encouraged and mutual shared and a shared kind of experience and it's difficult to see how other than like curiously enough other than in my experience with like go uh, abstinence based recovery groups 12 step groups you know a large part of which is sort of contingent upon a spiritual experience and and communal support i've not seen these values much at play but i'm mindful actually of i think i read this in you know yuval Noah harari and he's sort of you know he's pretty by the book with this kind of stuff he said like that you know that the rise of christianity from where it was you know a century before uh you know constantine took it up to where it is now he said is kind of like if the harry krishnas was to be the state religion of america in 30 years yeah he's picked a 30-year period before the conversion of constantine and like Perhaps it is possible that new emergent ideas based, you know, because I talked to Adam Curtis a lot. I know I'm throwing a lot at you here, Merlin. I'm throwing a lot over your way. But, you know, like perhaps like a, like a fungi, you can metastasize this information into <laughs> an astute, neat observation that could be easily understood in Latin because your use of the language is so beautiful. Um, Curtis says that we need a new myth I'm reading. I read something the other day, some uh, Jungian critique about uh, you know living in a, 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 an a, an age without a shared myth, without a shared vision. And I wonder if, given the fact that there is a kind of sacrament and a and a metaphor of oneness all within this, you know, I'm going to call it the cult of the mushroom, which I'm sure you'll loathe, but with the mushroom just being the fruit and all. I wonder if there's something that could be a catalytic in the ideas embedded in this and is that part of what's drawn you to it there i got to a question <laughs> well done um, thank you <laughs> so so yeah so i think there are lots of things in in the fungal world and in, in, in the way that fungi exist and have long existed and will no doubt continue to exist that can inform um our our sense of um what it is to be human and in sense in the sense of looking for this myth you know i, mean, I don't know if there will be one myth there's always been a plurality of myths um and so if we if we think about robert bringhurst the poet he has this very good way of he talks about um he talks about science as trying to and science understands the world by first translating it into numbers by quantifying it um he talks about myth as understanding the world by first personifying it and um, and then you know watching these 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 different mythological persons or or, or beings interact with one another um, just as the scientist would 
uh, allow those numbers to interact with one another in their models or simulations. And I think that's rather a helpful way um, to think about the uh, potential relationship between um, between scientific understandings and mythological understandings. And um, and so um, so let's see. Um, the short answer to your question was yes. I see a lot in the symbiotic way of life and and in fungal life that could um, perhaps inform some what we might think of as, as modern scientifically informed myths, which would converge um, you know, with many many old myths, uh, with any many many old traditional knowledge systems, uh, with the insights gleaned from there and the wisdoms um, gleaned from there. So I think there's perhaps some place where where um, these different ways of understanding can come into uh, come into harmony and come into coexistence. Well done. You actually answered that question. That was really good. And particularly that when you said um, the convergence of uh, scientifically undergirded myth. I mean, that bit was brilliant. That bit, I would say, is getting used in the public feed for like, something where we can mobilise an idea here for, for a, a real for broad consumption i would say um but touching upon that um sacrament component uh, of my in that rather discursive inquiry what do you uh do you think that there i mean obviously something that literally changes your perception something that alters your worldview that something that kind of seems to i don't know because I, I i'm obviously not qualified to to even make such a statement, but it almost appears like it might engage in some kind of neurological uh, rewiring. You know, it seems like that if you're looking for something that might change the the experience of individuals and, and alter the direction of a culture, it's an interesting place to look. And surely, whilst you've um, investigated many aspects, uh, while still only touching the surface of uh, fungi. This must be an element of it that fascinates you. Its relationship with the the, the relationship with psilocybin and, and presumably our other you know forms of fungi with human consciousness. Definitely, um, there are profound mysteries here. It's, I think it's a really interesting part of of the modern science of psychedelics that they uh, they spit you out pretty quickly into the deepest unknown um, mysteries that we still have to do with the nature of mind and consciousness and. Um, it's a kind of highway to the unanswered questions. Uh, and it's interesting to see modern science wrestle with this intractability and perhaps bump up against these mysteries more than um, is comfortable. I mean, just for example, in the book, I described this experience of being part of an LSD trial in a hospital. They're giving LSD to scientists and mathematicians to see if it could catalyze insight. And so I was lying there in this hospital, having been given the LSD by the nurses. And then every... Um, every half hour, then every hour, uh, they would come and take a blood sample to see how the LSD was moving through my body, even physiologically. And then I'd be given these you know, psychometric questionnaires to answer at the same time to try and understand what was going on inside my subjectivity and the rich, nuanced, lived experience. Um, that is, of course, being subjective, unavailable to the practices of the modern sciences, which have to work by objectifying. So there was this incredible... It was revealed, you know, there's this... this, this great tension um, at the heart of, of, of scientific inquiry. I was revealed in this absurd pantomime. Um, I was there chipping balls on this bed and, and, and laughing, you know, at these, these questions, like, how do you rate your experience of infinity? You know, how do you, uh, at, at any moment, rate your experience of infinity, let alone when you're um, under the influence of, uh, of government-produced 
um, government-sanctioned LSD. It was it was rather remarkable. But, but this idea that, that, that so they, they take the blood from my veins and they're looking at my body, um, they take the questions from my you know, from my mind and they're looking at my my mind. Um, and um, and this uh, this of course raises this 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 really major problem for people who are going to try trying to understand um, the nature of mind from um, conventional empirical scientific uh, method because you can't design an experience to get in, get inside uh, someone else's experience and uh, because that's just it's it's a it's a paradox uh, that's built in um, so I find this very interesting uh, and very amusing and it feels like it feels like psychedelics are, are kind of corrosive to um, to a um, objectifying um, no scientific viewpoint in some in some um, in some ways um, not necessarily always and and so I'm keen to see where this leads uh, I can't really um, I don't really know where it will lead but I'm, I'm I'm excited when I think about my experiences with LSD when I was younger I it chimes with what you described um, specifically with regard to ego dissolution. I, it, of course, I had no language to describe it, and you could contest that there is no language to describe it, that it's ulterior to language or somehow beyond language. But the feeling, uh, the, 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 the tension and the dread on some occasions and the joy on others was uh, was the sort of process of unpicking myself of like, oh, my God, I'm not me. I'm not me. The one thing certain in this ever changing mess of a life I'm living is itself not certain i am not me there is no essential meanness i'm just observing various forms of sensory data i'm experiencing memory i'm projecting based like it is a different once perception has been altered like that it's well i suppose we all snap back or by and large to a kind of a sort of a relatively ordinary experience of the world but i suppose it's um you know contested it's commonly contested that the suppression of these kind of experiences and and the prohibition of the substances that induce them is precisely because it, it does make it it do, it presents a challenge to the way that we see the world definitely and and psychedelics are one way to to mystical experience but just one way there are lots of other ways that mystical experiences can um can come about. Some of them come about and people have spontaneous mystical experiences and people have trauma-induced mystical experiences. Um, people have um, experiences induced by uh, even very mundane things, um, occurrences. So, so and some psychedelics are, are, seem to be a fairly reliable way um, to induce, induce these experiences and perhaps there's something in that reliability that, um, that could be helpful. Did anything else happen down that hospital when they were testing those things? Where was it? <laughs> um, it was in London. And, so the Royal um, Free. Where were you? No, it wasn't the Royal Free. It was called. Um, it was in Wembley. It was Northwick Park. It was in a clinical drug trial testing unit, um, and it was disconcerting because you know we they tried to disguise the fact these were hospital rooms. The, the people running the study were, were very sensitive and considerate and um, psychedelically well informed, um, and so they'd hung. Um, hangings on the walls and they had mood lights and 
um, to try and to declinicalize the setting. And, um, and of course, this just appeared to me all the funnier uh, because it was just a very thin veneer covering <laughs> up what was still obviously a hospital room. But um, the trouble was, like, if you ever have to use, had to use the loo, then you had to get outside and walk down the corridor. But the problem is everyone else there, you know, the nurses and the other people who were doing other types of clinical trial participating in those trials, they knew that there were some scientists, weirdos, doing LSD just down the hall. And so... When you walk down the corridor, there was definitely, I thought, am, does everyone, is pe- are people looking at me? Are people, and I was like, no, 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 don't worry. I was just, you're just tripping. Um, you're just worrying about things unnecessarily. But then I'm pretty sure that there was, um, I mean, in fact, I know that there was, there was quite a lot of amusement in general through the duration of the study, you know, for, for, for the rest of the, the, the ward. Um, and um, so that, there were all sorts of funny things that happen when you bring psychedelics into hospitals. <laughs> that's a, that could be your catchphrase um also transitioning merlin that's a challenging that's challenging at the best of times but if you're going like wandering out of a hospital room with a, a well-placed tapestry and a dream catcher to obscure the, the truth beneath it into sort of an overlit fluorescent hospital corridor that yeah that, that must have been a challenge it was a bump for sure. <laughs> Merlin, thank you so much for spending this time with us and for explaining these just, well, not challenging, but sort of intricate and beautiful ideas so charmingly and so passionately and elegantly. I really appreciate your time and I value your work. I hope we get to speak again. I hope so too, Russell. Thanks, thanks for having me. It's been great to chat. I was also like to go off and take drugs with you somewhere if it was wasn't illegal. And like you know, I have this fascination with psychedelics, but I'm like I'm in recovery. You know, I talk to people all the time, saying no, it'd be okay. People use psychedelics to get people off heroin, and I say I'm off heroin. That's I want to stay off of the heroin. <laughs> There's such a sort of a roll of the dice. I think I'm so I crave the mystery so profoundly Merlin I yearn for it I yearn for it I want it I've looked for it in so many strange places and you know when I think about like those sort of clumsy experiences with psychedelics as a kid and really how that should be undertaken at very least in a hospital bed with you know a picture of a wolf looking at the moon that's the least people could do (laughs) yeah well I'm sorry that experience didn't materialize but uh, (laughs) at least you were having it yeah it could still it could still yet happen all right thanks will will you give my love to your father also will do will do yeah ciao okay bye-bye mate see ya bye well did you like it Jen tell me your favorite bit of the podcast (laughs) what do you mean Uh, Um, what are you looking at now list I don't know you don't no I don't know because I'd I don't have a favourite bit. It was just nice listening. Well, it sounds to like speak. you've not really been listening. I was. Have you I edited that listening. podcast? Have you edited it yet? No. You've not even edited it yet. <laughs> yeah. What is your workflow? We're way ahead. I'm just, Are we? I'm finishing Liz right now. <laughs> <laughs> How has this made sense to a listener? <laughs> You see what you just listened to then? Jenny hasn't even edited it yet. So get that in your mind, Hull. Yeah. The thing that I've been thinking about with the mycelium network is that perhaps human beings are like it and they're connected by invisible tendrils that we don't know how to measure yet. And like when some when you could probably beam love at people if is, you wanted to. Is that to. like Rupert's morphic resonance? 
Yeah, it is a bit like Rupert Sheldrake. Why are you bringing up Rupert? Just because he's his dad. Because you're talking about pig. A, a whole thing. Yeah, <laughs> Being yeah. connected. It is connected. The cloud. Ah. Remember we said it was like the cloud. What, what did we say it was like the cloud? <laughs> the morphic resonance. I love morphic resonance. <laughs> it's a great theory. And I liked it when Rupert Sheldrake talked about anima, a, amateur biology and its roots in the clergy. He's a great guest as well. See? Favourite bit. What's my favourite bit of Merlin Sheldrake? Mycelium network, the various The whole thing's about basically mycelium network. Don't you dare come here fresh from a relationship <laughs> with a hound <laughs> and criticise me, one of the great broadcasters of our time. Did you watch Star Trek? The, <laughs> the mycelium network. What do you mean? Is that an episode? It's like the whole season is based on called mycelium network. No, it's they have a thing in the ship where they can connect to the mycelium network well, and like nice. time hop around. Who's who's the captain? <laughs> Pike. <laughs> Pike. He's definitely in it at some point, Captain Pike. Captain Pike. Nice. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, I you, think you like is... it. I oh, will watch it. All right. Because then he, he puts an implant of. Not a mushroom. Why are you rubbing your arm like that? Because he puts an implant in his arm of the mycelium network so he can connect Connect to it. Well, I do like that. That sounds lovely. All right. I like that. That I like. Okay. Oh, Jenny, (laughs) what are we going to do with you? We're going to have to find some sort of institution (laughs) that will take you. Okay. Well, follow me on all the internet sites that you can for heaven's holy sake. Sign up to that mailing list if you want more of this stuff. Thankfully, Jenny doesn't participate in those videos. (laughs) And I write the email absolutely alone. No, actually, Charlie helps with that. You're right, Charlie. Charlie's looming at the precipice. All right, that's the end of the podcast. Thank you for joining me on Under the Skin, only from Luminary.